And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I know you often hear me say that this is one of my favorite passages, but this is one of my favorite passages. <laughs> um, and I think I got hooked on our, our first, really introduced to the depth of it, uh, from Oswald Chambers, but we'll get into that later. So far in this letter to the Second Corinthians, Paul's been defending his ministry against detractors. Some people had come into the church and were complaining, you know, Paul, he's not all eloquent and he's a little, little guy and he's got a big hook nose and, you know, he's, he's not very impressive. And there, there's these other guys that are really impressive and they know all the, all the Jewish laws and all that. So he had to defend himself and he was doing so um, and one of his defenses was that he wasn't like other ministers who were in it for personal gain, who were making or getting rich off the ministry. He, he called them peddlers of God's word because the whole time he was in Corinth, he worked for a living. He would, he would uh, preach during the day and then um, when everybody took the siesta, normally he would have, he'd have like church meetings and then he'd work through the evening uh, with his hands. He was a leather worker. He made tents and so forth. And so he was, his defense was, I'm not doing this for money. I'm only doing this for you because I'm your servant. And I love you and I love Jesus. And I want you to know Jesus better. His desire was that the veil that was over people with hardened hearts be lifted to the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus. He encouraged the readers to behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the same image. That's chapter 3, verse 18, just before this passage. Did you get what he said? Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image. That's a powerful, amazing promise. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So Paul's telling us that this, this priceless treasure of the new covenant, this relationship that we have with God through Christ, transforms us and makes us into new, new creations who are right with God. And that wonder of all that is in this little fragile, frail body. And he likens it to a, a jar of clay. 
Now, clay jars were kind of like, in that age, they were kind of like uh, our disposable food containers. You know, you go to a, a drive-through and you get this little box and you eat the food and you throw the container away. That's kind of what clay jars were a little bit more valuable than that. But they're fragile. And any archaeological site you go to, any ancient archaeological site, is covered with pottery. Even here, um, before we had so many tourists, when I was a young boy and I'd go to the ruins here, uh, my grandpa would take me to ruins he'd found up out in the woods and up in some canyon somewhere, and there'd be pottery everywhere. Now the tourists have picked them all up, but clay, all that to say clay jars are very fragile. When we go to sites in Israel, some of them are just littered uh, with, with these clay, broken pieces of clay pots. They're made from dust, and to dust they return just like us. They were the cheapest of storage vessels. You know, when we have something really valuable, we go to great extent to protect it, right? We rent safety deposit boxes, or we buy a safe and install it on our house to protect our valuables. But something more precious than anything this world has is in these clay pots. That's an amazing thing. Our minds are so limited, our desires are so easily influenced, our strength is so limited, and yet God put this glorious covenant in us and sealed it with his Holy Spirit. He makes us ambassadors to share this treasure with the world. There's a reason that he would do such an unlikely thing. It's to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Surpassing power is, is like saying power to an extraordinary degree, beyond what man is capable of doing. When the apostles healed the sick or raised the dead, they didn't think, wow, I'm really powerful. What an amazing person I am. They knew the power came from the one who made his home in them, and they gave him all the glory. If I deliver a powerful anointed message that touches hearts and transforms lives, my wife doesn't say, my husband's so incredible, <laughs> because she knows this treasure is in a clay vessel. She knows I'm weak and fragile. No matter how carefully I care for this clay pot, this body of mine, and try to keep it in subjection, it's still a fragile clay pot and it will return to dust, unless the Lord returns first. You know, when you, we, we go to Israel, we see those sites. It's, I've been with an archaeologist before, and he took us to the dump. The dump is where they put all the clay pottery that they've marked and cataloged as they went through the excavation. And there's these huge mounds, you know, of jar handles and pieces of jars. And part of the reason was, in the Jewish culture, according to Levitical law, if the clay pot was defiled, and their Jewish law tells us many ways a clay pot can be defiled, you had to break it. As soon as it was defiled, you had to break it. And so there were a lot of broken pots, not just that they accidentally dropped them, but they were intentionally broken. And sometimes, a lot of times, in fact, people use those broken pieces of pottery to write messages. We call them ostracon. 
there's actually a word for broken pieces of pottery that you write on, ostracon. And they would send messages on broken pieces of pottery because it was like the paper of that day. If you had it, it's kind of like the Twitter account, I guess. It had to be a short message, only so many words, and you could pass it on and it could be passed around. No bird sounds, though. <laughs> so, but Paul's point is that we are very fragile. If anything supernatural comes from us, if anything of lasting value and eternal significance, the power is from God. It's not our own power. Never think that you are too weak to be a vessel for God. In fact, he seems to intentionally use the weakest to show his surpassing power. This really encouraged me this morning. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go on a, on a trip to Israel, and, I, and I'm with these men that have planted thousands of churches, and I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to speak to them? I mean, i got to study, i got to prepare, i got to... And then I'm reading this, and I'm going, oh, it's all Jesus. <laughs> Man, what a relief that is to know that God's going to do his work through our weakness, through these clay pots. As I studied this passage, though, it also reminded me of several Christian leaders who made a profound impact, and yet at the end of their life, they fell into sin. And instead of discounting their words that touched lives, we should marvel at a God who could even use such weak men. That I'm, by no means am I justifying or excusing their failure at the end of their life. Hezekiah is an example of that. He was a king of Israel, and yet he made some very poor choices at the end of his extended life. You know, God gave him an extra 15 years uh, when he was about to die. The prophet came in and told him, God heard your prayers, and he gave him the solution to heal his body. But that last 15 years in which he made some mistakes doesn't discount the good life of Hezekiah and all the reforms that he made. And it tells us that he was buried with his fathers, the, the good kings of Israel. How much better, though, to end with a, a good testimony of God empowering us until our graduation into glory. We must understand that God does not make us powerful when we embrace our weakness. I had to read that several times. He doesn't make us powerful when we embrace our weakness. It's his power through our weaknesses. We remain weak. To him belongs the strength. The results are that all the glory goes to him, where it should go. If a person is used powerfully by God's stumbles, we shouldn't be surprised. They're a clay pot. They're a weak vessel. Nor should we be surprised if they don't stumble because the Lord is able to uphold them with his righteous right hand. All the glory goes to God. Someone once asked St. Francis how he was able to accomplish so much. He replied, this may be why 
the Lord looked down from heaven and he said, where can I find the weakest, littlest man on earth? And then he saw me and he said, I found him and he won't be proud of it. He'll see that I'm only using him because of his insignificance. Verse 8. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Our mortal bodies that Paul calls these jars of clay with the gospel treasure inside are going to get banged around. And most of you can say amen. And the older we get, the more we can say amen, right? Part of that's just living in a fallen world. God does not exempt us from aging or viruses or bacteria or suffering, but he does use it all to teach us endurance and trust in him. He's our healer, which means he also allows us to be sick. You know, he couldn't be our healer if he didn't allow us to be sick or injured. The believer's benefit is that we know God's working all things together for good to those who love him. He can heal us for further service, or he can take us home to our reward in his perfect time. Not having the fear of death is one of the, the greatest benefits that we as believers have. You know, Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 21 to 25, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And he wrote that in prison chained to a Roman soldier. Every day for him was Jesus. Oh, that we might all live like that. Amen? Then we can truly say to die is gain. But if the Lord wants me to continue to serve, it'll be to bless others. In verses 8 and 9, Paul gives four statements that contrast the hardships of life that we experience in these jars of clay with God's enabling power. The first is afflicted, but not crushed, or one commentator put it, squeezed, but not squashed. Paul knew affliction, and he knew what pressure was. He had what most commentators believed to be a disease affecting his eyes, and many people would be crushed by such an affliction. But God told him his grace would be sufficient for him. Someone once compared um, hardships that we go through uh, to a picture, a word picture that I've never forgotten. I think it was uh, Woost. Um, that w when we have hardships in life, it's like uh, uh, rocks under the ocean. And we, we want to get into the safe harbor, but there's this shoal there that will tear our ship apart. And we can't get into the safety of that harbor. And there's nothing we can do about it. But God can raise the tide. 
That's grace. Grace doesn't always take the rocks away. Grace often lifts us up and brings us over, leaving those difficulties still in place. Some people face afflictions that I don't comprehend how they cannot be crushed, but I see the tide of God's grace daily lifting them and causing them to depend completely on him. The next difficulty is to be perplexed. Paul mentions times in the book of Acts when he didn't know where God was leading. He couldn't see the way forward. He just knew the spirit of God wouldn't let him go here and wouldn't let him go there. And it was like, okay, well, what, God? What? Where am I? Most of you have experienced that. But because we know we're in God's hands and that every day of our life is planned by him before we were born, Psalm 139.16 tells us, we can trust that we simply need to trust and not give in to despair. The unbeliever giving in to experiencing despair has nothing to turn to other than other men like themselves, and that will always lead to disappointment. In each of those hardships, we see that a relationship with God gives us benefits that the world cannot experience. That's why we need to share the treasure with them. Seeing us endure hardship is often the reason that they ask about the hope that lies in us. The next is to be persecuted. Paul told Timothy that everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's because our lives, if we're living a godly life, will bring conviction. And the world will always go to extremes, either asceticism or hedonism. One is, uh, I don't enjoy any pleasures. I'm denying myself of all pleasures. That's pretty rare in our day. Hedonism is the, the religion of our culture. Do whatever you like, whatever makes you feel good. Just don't harm anyone. The only problem is sin always harms people. Their mantra is, do whatever you feel like. So when they get to know a Christian or hear us speak of right and wrong, if they ask us, like Joy was just telling us in Sunday school, point blank, is this a sin? And we have to say, yeah, but God loves you, and he wants to redeem you, and I'm a sinner too, saved by grace, and you can be too. We have to be honest. So when they hear of righteousness and judgment, if the Holy Spirit's not working in their hearts, drawing them to himself, the people become angry, and that leads to persecution. Peter described it this way in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The enemy of our souls is really clever in that he incites unbelievers to think that we are the ones who are keeping them from having a fulfilled life. But sin always harms us. 
For hedonists, the facts about the consequences of immoral actions are ignored. Satan incites people to think that persecuting Christians is actually a good thing, a, a moral thing, because we make people feel uncomfortable about being ungodly. Jesus warned that this disciples of that day that the time would come when whoever kills you will think he's doing God's service. Faith in Christ draws us out of the world's culture into heaven's culture, the kingdom of God, and biblical thinking. And that means we are destined to clash with this world. However, when we are persecuted, this passage just told us, we are not forsaken. Many persecuted believers tell us that it was during the times of persecution that they experienced the presence of Christ to a greater degree. I uh, remember, this just brings to mind uh, some brothers in Morocco who were imprisoned and didn't know, you know, <laughs> they'd converted from Islam to Christianity. And they didn't know if they're going to be executed or not. And they, I talked to one of them. The three of them held hands in, in the prison. They were praying together that God would give them the strength and help them get through whatever God had for them. And they heard literally an audible voice, the voice of God, tell them, you're soon to be released. And they were, by the grace of God. But others who actually endure suffering, well, one of them later on was beaten severely and hospitalized, and yet they were not forsaken. God's still working in their lives, strengthening them, providing their needs. That's our assurance that he's going to see us through. We'll find that at times we're struck down, which implies actually implies being hit. It's a verbiage in Greek of being hit with a weapon. Struck down, but not destroyed. Knocked down, but not knocked out. There are many ways to be struck down with words in conversation, physical assault, such as the stoning of the Apostle Paul, condemned in court, lied about, even within the church. The expression struck down has the feel like feeling of not being able to get up, being defeated at the moment. It is to come to an end of yourself feeling that you have no other options. But we are not destroyed. That's the promise. God will raise us up. He renews our strength when we look to him and wait on him to revive us. When we cast ourselves upon the Lord, the Psalms promise, promise us that we, he will sustain us. Someone might ask why, why, well, man, if you want to go through all that, why would you want to be a follower of Jesus? I mean, who, who wants to do all that? Facing these difficulties happens to every human being. The difference is we have the promise that they don't have. The response of God, they become crushed and are driven to despair, are forsaken and may be destroyed. The promise of God's response of his power is for believers. In addition, our hardships make us stronger and lays up treasure in heaven for us. It draws us closer to our loving creator. Verse 10, 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The word used in this verse for death refers to the process of dying, not the state of being dead. In other words, Paul's carrying in his body the dying of Jesus. Jesus told him at the time of his, his when he converted Saul, he said, why are you persecuting me? All those Christians that Paul was persecuting, the Lord identified with personally. When we are afflicted, when we're perplexed, when we're persecuted, when we're struck down, as we identify with his dying on the cross for us, he is with us. It's an intentional refusal to cling to this life. It is a denial of self to allow God to have his way. And as we carry about the dying of Jesus, the life of Jesus is manifested in us because we are not crushed. We're not despairing. We're not forsaken. We are not destroyed. That's both for our enduring through this life and also looking forward to the life that's to come when we'll be transformed, when that transformation totally into his image will be completed. I think this must have been a, one of Oswald Chambers' favorite verses, and this is where it meant became so meaningful to me because I kept seeing it come up in his devotions, my utmost for his highest. If, if you um, haven't read My Utmost for His Highest, it's a, the English is a little older and British, but it's one, it is, I believe it's the richest devotional you'll ever find. And it was through that devotional that I realized what a treasure this verse was. Remember that Paul is speaking of himself and those who do ministry with him. However, as all who are in Christ have a ministry and are priests to God, I believe we should all take this verse as our life goal. You've probably heard the expression, we're the only Bible that people read, or we're the hands and feet of Jesus to the world today. The goal of the Christian life is to allow the life of Jesus to be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's a big goal. It was in the weakness of the cross that Jesus won the greatest victory by the power of God, victory over sin and death. But the only way we can do that is to have our old sinful nature be dying with Jesus on the cross. And that is what he means by the words he said, always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus. Our carnal desires and our selfish nature are always on the cross of Christ. That's what allows the life of Jesus to be seen in our mortal flesh. The body isn't evil. If the old nature controls the body via our soul, the body's used for evil. But if the resurrected life of Christ controls the body through his spirit in our spirit, made alive in Christ, our soul and body act in godly ways. Then Jesus' life is seen in us. 
Chambers writes in, in uh, there was about, uh, I, I found at least five different devotionals on that, by Chambers on this verse. And so I just want to give you a, a quote from three of them. The first one, he says that Jesus said, of whom I travail in birth, or Paul said, of whom I prevail, travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. That's Galatians 4.19. Just as our Lord came into human history from outside, so he must come into me from outside. Have I allowed my personal human life to become a Bethlehem for the Son of God? I cannot enter into the realm of the kingdom of God unless I'm born above by a birth totally unlike natural birth. You must be born again. This isn't a command. It's a foundational fact. The characteristic of the new birth is that I yield myself so completely to God that Christ is formed in me. Immediately, Christ is formed in me. His nature begins to work through me. Jesus said, if you would be my disciple, give up your right to yourself up to me. Give up your right to yourself to me. Then the remainder of your life is nothing but the manifestation of surrender. When once the surrender has taken place, we never need suppose anything. We do not need to care what our circumstances are. Jesus is amply sufficient. Now, that's the end of the second quote. It's giving up our right to ourselves that that Paul's addressing when he writes, always caring about the body, the death or dying of Jesus. And that surrender should have come when we first trusted Jesus to be our savior. It's the only right response to all that he's done for us, taking our sins, giving us his righteousness. But I think it's common for us to accept that gracious gift of salvation and then go about our life partly surrendered. We give God certain areas of our lives, but no other parts. But if our, God, our goal is to truly see Christ manifested in our mortal bodies, we need to fully surrender our right to ourselves, to Jesus. Here's another quote from the last one, the third one from Chambers. It's not a question of whether God is willing to sanctify me, is it my will? Am I willing to let God do in me all that he has made possible through the atonement? Am I willing to let Jesus be made sanctification to me and let the life of Jesus be manifested in my mortal flesh? End of quote. You know, here in this passage, Paul's merely expressing in a different way what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 11 and 12, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, 
but life in you. We must understand the previous verse to understand what Paul is expressing here. It sounds contradictory to someone who's never experienced the rebirth that we can have in Christ. We who live is referring to all who have Christ Jesus living in them, who experienced the death to self and the surrender to Jesus as Lord. They continually crucify the desires of the old nature and walk in newness of life. It's these people who are always being given over to death. Or as Paul said in the previous verse, always caring about in the body the death of Jesus. Put another way, those who are born again continually die to the old carnal nature. We continually die to self to serve Jesus, which is a joy. You know, to the world, this sounds like, oh, give up my right to myself? Give up my own will to his will? What? Until the veil's lifted. Amen? And then we see the wonder of who it is we are serving and the joy of serving him, the privilege of serving our creator, being who God created us to be. Paul isn't complaining here. He's talking about the upside-down world of the kingdom of God, where to die is to live and giving is gain and to die, deny oneself is to be fulfilled. The carnal mind is repulsed by these realities, and so it must continually be crucified with Christ. It's for Jesus' sake. It's all for his glory. His mercy and grace have drawn us out from the world, calling us his own. This is incomparably better than any worldly position of fame or fortune but it can only be experienced by casting ourselves on the grace and mercy of God expressed through Jesus. The veil has to be lifted so that we can see who we are and who God is and realize how desperately we need his mercy. All things are for his sake because he alone is worthy. But the marvel of it all is that he's given us himself and he's transforming us into his likeness. When he's glorified through our death to self, it brings his life to others. They see something in us that they instinctively know that they need. The peace and the joy manifest is Jesus' life in us. Those who are truly seeking truth by God's grace recognize it, and then we have the opportunity of sharing life with them, inviting them to die to themselves so that they might truly live. So don't hide the treasure, jars of clay. Let Jesus have all of you. Surrender yourself fully to him. Let his life be seen through your clay pot. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you come and lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction.